Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. So glad you're joining us today. Today, I'm joined by my first ever college professor and the first professor I ever worked on a research project with, Dr. Daniel Clark. Dr. Clark has extensive research into the realm of microbiology and virology, and he's going to be working with me today to break down what a virus is, how a virus spreads from person to person, the unique drug targets and different things that go into developing treatments for viruses, and if there even is a treatment. Sometimes the immune system is the best thing that we have to fight viruses. We also give special consideration to hepatitis, specifically HPV, since that's Dr. Clark's main area of of research interest, and that's the area that we researched together as well. You can find out more about Dr. Clark by clicking the link below, and you can find our research article that we published back in 2020 together below as well. Before we get to this podcast, here's a quick word from one of our sponsors. Dr. Clark, welcome to the podcast. Excited to have you on today. Yeah, it's great to be here. So, for people who just in general aren't familiar with you and your research work, could you tell a little bit about what you're interested in and what you've studied? Sure. I have a doctorate degree in molecular biology. And so I studied autoimmune diseases when I got my PhD. So we looked at things like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, just trying to figure out if someone has a genetic risk factor for these things, how does that small change in your genome actually lead you to getting disease like that? And I did a little bit of work with uh, Epstein-Barr virus and herpes simplex virus during my PhD as well. And then for a a postdoctoral fellowship I did, I branched out a little bit and looked at uh, the immunology of hepatitis B virus and studied hepatitis B in in that postdoctoral work. So I worked with a lot of different viruses, I guess, um, but immunology and virology are my background. Right. You're certainly an expert in the realm of virology. And, uh, you know, it's not like anyone knows of any like infamous virus that's spreading right now or anything like that. (laughs) But a lot of people really don't understand what a virus is or how it works, how it infects someone. So maybe we start from kind of that 30,000 foot overview. When we talk about a virus, what even is a virus and how does it go about infecting someone? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the funny things about it is scientists don't even know if a virus is alive. (laughs) That's a question that we talk about. Is the virus really alive or not? So when something's alive, there's things about it, like it grows, it develops, and these sort of things. And a virus can do some of those, but it also has to move. And uh, so many other parts of what a virus does are, are missing. So it's not even really alive. A virus is just the code to make more of itself. That's all that it is. And so that means it has to have a genome. All other living things have a DNA genome, but viruses can have RNA for their genome as well. So the code is uh, the main part, and then it has to have something to um, to house all of that. And so the uh, The proteins that enclose the DNA or RNA are the capsid proteins. And so a virus is pretty simple. You can have the code inside the DNA or RNA, 
and a capsid proteins on the outside and that's it like that's the entire virus it's just a program to make more of itself gotcha so that virus enters the body somehow and then those dna rna instructions get inside some cell in your body and that cell then uh, gets kind of like hijacked almost it seems and starts to produce more viral particles instead of normal healthy cells yeah, so you can think of a virus as a, a pirate. It gets in and takes over. And uh, a lot of times the virus is compatible with the host cell and the cell just turns into a virus factory. So it just makes more virus. But uh, the actual most common pattern for a viral infection is that the host wins. And so the virus gets in and kills the cells and makes more of itself. Meanwhile, the immune system is tracking it down and killing it. So most viruses are actually cured by the immune system. And it's actually more rare that the virus stays with you for a longer time. So there's just a, a handful of viruses that cause lifelong uh, chronic or persistent infections. Uh, but most of them, the cure is the immune system. Now, the strange thing about talking about this idea of long lasting viral infections is there is no cure for any viral infection except the immune system. We don't have any drugs to cure any virus. The only exception is uh, hepatitis C, which is not the hepatitis B that I studied, but uh, around 2012, uh, we finally came up with a combination of drugs that was able to cure a virus infection. Now, isn't that crazy that there's no cure for any virus except for one? Everything else, we don't care about the cure because your immune system is the cure. Usually if you have a viral infection, you go to the doctor, he'll say, well, get plenty of rest, lots of fluids, stay healthy, and uh, you'll feel better soon. And then the immune system cures the infection. Right. So then any kind of medical support or treatment would just be giving things to support the immune system then. So vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, um, there's some different research on herbal things. Some of that's a little controversial. Yeah but in general, just supporting the immune system then. Yeah, and then also, you know, counteracting whatever damage is being done. So if there's, you know, some sort of respiratory failure, get them on oxygen. All of those other things, the damage that's being done by the virus needs to be counteracted medically. But as far as actually getting rid of the virus, you're right. We are just trying to support the immune system. Right, and a person's ability for their immune system to destroy that virus is going to vary a lot based on underlying health factors, correct? So like if someone is in a chronic state of systemic inflammation, then instead of, you know, hitting the virus first try, it might take a couple more tries to finally get it. And that might cause a little bit of damage to your own cellular structures in the process. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. So our immune system has to kill our own cells because a virus infects our own cells. So we have to be able to detect which cells are infected and we get it wrong and there's bystander damage. So there's a lot of um, immunopathology when it comes to viral infection. Um, most of perhaps, uh, or at least, you know, maybe you could say like half of the damage happening to your body is not directly due to the virus, but instead due to your immune system killing off those cells that are infected. Interesting. So in a way, it's almost like a viral infection is somewhat similar to a autoimmune condition in that sense, correct? Yeah. And in an autoimmune uh, disease, you're accidentally targeting your own cells. 
but in a viral infection, you're targeting your own cells on purpose. You want to kill those off. Um, since you're made of, you know, 10 trillion cells or so, it's okay to lose a few million in the course of killing off a virus. Right, right. That makes sense. Now, kind of getting into your area of interest more specifically, there's a few different hepatitis viruses out there. There's hep B, there's hep C. How does each hepatitis virus differ from one another? And what is HBV, uh, which has been your main area of interest, as you said? Yeah, so there's, uh, there's five different hepatitis viruses, and they're, uh, they're kind of related one to another, and then a few differences. So um, hepatitis A and E, you get by eating something that was contaminated by someone that is shedding the virus in their feces. And so, you know, um, so you hear of outbreaks here and there. Um, and then hepatitis B, C, and D, those are all bloodborne. So you get those by, um, you know, contaminated needles, or you get it vertically, it's called, where a mother can pass it along to a child. And uh, the main cause uh, in the United States is sexual transmission, since bloodborne pathogens can be spread sexually. So, um, yeah, but around the world, most of the hepatitis infections are vertically, where someone, uh, a mother has it and passes it on to their children. So um, imagine instead of, you know, trying to avoid it and accidentally getting it, imagine being born with one of these diseases and you're stuck with it for your entire life. So um, hepatitis B, C, uh, and D, those are that kind of rare exception where we have a lifelong infection. Hepatitis A and E, they cause some liver damage and then they're uh, more likely to be cleared. But uh, B, C, and D are these lifelong infections that just cause damage over a long period of time. Right. And those symptoms they cause are not pleasant to say the least, right? You can have full body itching in some cases, GI stuff like nausea and vomiting, joint pain, loss of appetite, fatigue, weakness, pain in different areas of the body. Not, nothing that anyone wants to sign up for. And what's amazing to me or crazy to me, I should say, is that 250 million people uh, live currently in the world with chronic hepatitis B infections, which uh, I, I feel like that number is just a lot higher than I kind of thought in my mind at first, because you don't hear much about hepatitis B, right? You know, we, we hear about kind of what I call the uh, mainstream infections right now. We hear about um, COVID, we hear about um, other conditions like diabetes, obesity, other chronic conditions, but Hepatitis B is one that never really found its way into the spotlight as far as I know. Uh, so it's interesting just how prevalent it is, just how debilitating the symptoms are and how little is being shared about it. Yeah, and I think we are in a little bit of a bubble in the United States. The incidence is you know, less than 2% of people that have it, but it can approach 10% uh, of the population in other countries. I mean, imagine that like one in 10 people having this. Um, this is the ninth global leading cause of death. That's crazy. Like um, something like 800,000 people a year die from hepatitis B related infections. And so, uh, or the damage due to hepatitis B. So um, it's kind of a silent disease. So I, I know that you just went through that, you know, that list. It sounds kind of horrifying to get one of these diseases and I'm not trying to ignore that. But one of the strange things about it is you could live 
uh, for decades without even knowing you have it. And that's part of the problem. So it, it can cause some uh, acute uh, symptoms when you first are infected, but then for uh, many years, it can just be silently doing damage to your liver. And so uh, later on is when you'll see things like, uh, you know, this hepatitis, this inflammation of the liver, cirrhosis, where we call uh, this damage that leads to scar tissue and um, this fibrosis of, of the tissue in the liver. And then uh, it's also causing cancer. So hepatocellular carcinoma is one of the, um, one of the few types of cancer that um, can be caused by hepatitis B. Um, there's also things like primary hepatic carcinoma. So cancer, I mean, it's crazy that a virus can, um, can also cause cancer of the liver, which is one of the reasons why it can kill you. That is interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, I didn't know that viruses could cause cancer because when I think of cancer, I think of just in general, like unchecked, uncontrolled cellular division, right? And once right. that starts to get blood flow, so angiogenesis becomes a factor, that tumor, that cancerous tumor can grow exponentially in just a matter of weeks. Uh, so it, it's interesting to me how something like a viral infection could essentially, from what I understand, expedite that process of angiogenesis to the tumor, right? Getting it blood flow, getting it nutrients that it needs to grow. Because in, in one way or another, we all have cancerous cells in our body. Our body is just good about getting rid of them and cleaning them out and recycling them, uh, hopefully anyways. Uh, so it, it's interesting that something like an infection can be the straw to break the camel's back, so to speak, and literally cause or further that process of cancer development in someone. Yeah, and um, some viruses actually do it more directly. Hepatitis B is more that, uh, you know, tipping the scale towards cancer. So yeah, some viruses do encode proteins that they call them like oncogenes or viral oncogenes. So they'll um, directly cause uh, this uncontrolled cell growth. But, but uh, a lot of other ones like hepatitis B, it's more um, this idea of chronic inflammation leading to uh, more of an uncontrolled cell growth. It's not cancer directly, but imagine cells just dying uh, at a faster rate because of all this inflammation. Well, that means cells are, are having to proliferate more than normal. And so increased proliferation increases the chance for mutations that lead to cancer. So virus gets in, causes inflammation. Inflammation causes a faster cell turnover, meaning that the rates of mutation are going to increase, leading to a higher chance for getting cancer. Interesting. So in general, a great way to hopefully work to prevent cancer development then would be controlling systemic inflammation uh, at a cellular level then. And that, that there's a lot of different ways to do that from nutrition and lifestyle and avoiding certain factors that contribute to inflammation. Uh, but that's something we talk about different times on the podcast is just this common factor amongst so many diseases is the underlying inflammation level in the body. Uh, it's very interesting to note, though, just how uh, inflammation can be contributed or attributed to uh, various cancers and how infections like a virus can be, like I said before, that straw that breaks the camel's back and kind of sends things out of balance, out, out of balance, out of whack, so to speak. 
So when it comes to uh, infections like hepatitis B, you mentioned before that for the most part, we, we don't have a whole lot of treatment options for viruses. So is hepatitis B uh, uh, kind of falling into that category as well? We don't really have any kind of treatment or drug target for it yet, or um, is there a treatment option for it? Yeah, there actually are good treatments. So uh, what I want to make clear is that what we're lacking are cures. So the immune system is the only cure for most viral infections. And uh, so for a lot of virus infections, we can treat you. There are some drugs that will help. But as far as this virus would be with you for your, your entire life, if it weren't for this drug, and then this magic drug will cure it and remove it from your body. Um, once we have a persistent viral infection, um, like we mentioned earlier, hepatitis C is the only one where we can use drugs to cure it and remove it completely from your body. So with hepatitis B, there are a lot of good drugs that are able to stop the virus from um, producing more of its genome, and that's how it's slowed down. Um, I also want to mention before we continue um, talking about how the drugs work in a little more detail, the fact that there are preventatives. So can we stop it before it starts? So there is a vaccine for hepatitis B. This is actually the one that's given the earliest in the United States. Um, we like to give the child this right when they're born. So the baby comes out, we wipe them down. And one of the first things we do is give them a shot of the hepatitis B vaccine. Because it's bloodborne, um, then, you know, and if we're able to prevent it, then that's a great way to stop this from happening. And most people that get hepatitis B as an adult um, don't have this lifelong chronic infection. It's usually people that get it as a child that will have a lifelong infection. So something like 95% of people that get it when they're very young will have it for life. But only about 5% of people that get it later on as an adult will have it for life. The immune system can clear it in, case, in certain cases. So it's, it's not always a 100% that this will lead to a lifelong infection, but it is very common. Interesting, I didn't know that. That's interesting how when people are younger, it, if they're infected with hep B, it leads to lifelong infections. But if you're infected with it during uh, later in life, your body can fight the virus on its own. You mentioned that there's a vaccine to help prevent it. Do you know the mechanism for that vaccine? Is it kind of like a weakened viral vector or does it use some of the new uh, kind of mRNA mechanism or how does it work? Yeah, this is, uh, it was originally developed from people's blood. Um, one weird thing about hepatitis B is it will make the full viral particle with the genome inside, but it will also secrete out from infected cells subviral particles. So uh, particles that don't have the genome. And so we would take someone that was infected and try to fractionate their blood. So remove all of the viral particles that had a genome and only have those subviral particles that had what are called the surface protein. And so these surface protein containing particles, they're not infectious. They won't give you hepatitis B, but that's the same target that someone that has hepatitis B or doesn't, like we're all going to target that surface protein because it's on the outer portion of the viral particle. So later on, when we realized that those fractionation techniques, um, 
they're very good, but what if, like what if we accidentally had a single particle that had the genome? And so uh, we wouldn't want to infect someone with the vaccine. So the hepatitis B vaccine that's used today is uh, synthesized in a laboratory and it only will contain the surface uh, protein. That means there's no DNA in the vaccine at all. So you're not able to get the virus from the vaccine. So I just wanted to mention that little bit of history that um, we tried to do this from people's blood originally. And now we've switched to a much uh, like a, you could think of this as a completely safe method. You're not going to get hepatitis B from the vaccine uh, because it's a laboratory synthesized subviral um, particle that just has the surface protein in it. Right. So by targeting that surface protein, the viral uh, load, if you are infected, will not be able to enter your cells because you have a defense against it. So in that sense, that seems to be comparable to other uh, viral vaccines as they seem to target that unique protein domain on the virus and they try and prevent the virus from even entering the cell in the first place so then it can't replicate. Right. Since viruses rely on an interaction with their surface proteins and a receptor on the human cell, if we can disrupt that interaction by coating the virus with antibody, which is the point of a vaccine, then that virus can't contact its receptor. And that's, uh, that's part of why um, viruses are so specific. Like when we talk about a hepatitis virus, there's a receptor on liver cells that these viruses use. They can't enter a brain cell or a blood cell. They can only get into the liver because of that specific interaction with their surface proteins and the human receptor. That receptor is only found on liver cells. And so it can only get into liver cells. Some viruses are less picky. They could infect many cells of the body or even different species. But uh, the general theme is that viruses are very specific. They only infect one species usually, and usually even uh, a certain cell type within that species. Interesting. It's, it's good in some ways that they're so specific, right? We don't want something like this going into so many different species of animals and, uh, you know, different people and different parts of the body. Uh, so in, in that sense, it's good that some viruses have that specificity. Now with hepatitis B, there's a kind of protein domain uh, called the terminal protein domain. And from what I understand, your research has actually mapped uh, the terminal protein domain through molecular and evolutionary analysis and mapping the functional subdomains of that terminal protein domain of HBV. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So the hepatitis B virus has an enzyme that copies its genome, just like most viruses need to have. And so uh, hepatitis B virus is actually very highly related to the human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, that causes AIDS. And so both of those viruses are retroviruses, meaning that they do kind of an interesting process. They'll take a molecule of RNA and reverse transcribe it and make a copy that's a DNA copy. Um, every other living thing besides viruses uses their DNA to make an RNA and the RNA is the intermediate that uh, gets read and turned into proteins. So the whole point of a genome is to encode proteins and that RNA intermediate is there as a, a go-between. So just a couple of viruses in this group of retroviruses 
they uh, go the wrong way on the one-ray street and they, they take an RNA molecule and reverse transcribe it to DNA. So both HIV and hepatitis B virus have a reverse transcriptase enzyme. Now this, uh, the strange part about hepatitis B is it will actually use the protein itself to start the process going. So it will um, take these nucleotides, the A's, T's, C's, and G's, as it's copying an RNA molecule. And uh, the protein itself will act as a primer, meaning that the first nucleotide, all of these A's, T's, C's, and G's, will actually stick it onto itself. So it will act as its own primer on this terminal protein domain. So you have to add on to something when you're copying DNA and there's uh, the solution that hepatitis B virus has come up with is to use the protein as that starting point. So we'll attach the first nucleotide onto the protein, onto itself, and then continue to string along all of the rest of these uh, nucleotides to make this DNA copy. So the terminal protein domain is unique to hepatitis B. No other protein exists that acts in this uh, same way in the entire field of virology. And so having this terminal protein domain that's so essential for how the virus does its work. And uh, that means that we have something that's essential and also unique. If you're in the drug world and you wanna target something, that's exactly the recipe you would want. You wanna target something that is unique, meaning that it's gonna hit the virus, but not hit the human cell. We don't want, a, uh, we want selective toxicity. When we want it to hit a virus infected cell, but leave a non-infected cell completely alone. And so um, having something that's unique, but also essential means that that would be a great drug target. Now, despite the fact that I've studied this terminal protein domain and tried to map what each part of it does, um, I'm not in the drug development world myself. And so part of what needs to happen in a situation like this is to have uh, you know, another type of laboratory that studies drug development take something like this uh, unique protein or region of the protein and then develop chemicals, these small molecule inhibitors that would inhibit the function of this part of the protein. Interesting, right? So you've got, as you said, it's a unique and essential uh, piece of the virus and it creates a unique target as a result of that because human cells and the rest of the body doesn't have that specific target. It doesn't have that specific protein. Only the virus itself does. Uh, are there any antiviral therapies that currently target um, the terminal protein domain, or are they more focused on that process of reverse uh, transcriptase that you described earlier? So currently there are no drugs that target that terminal protein domain. And you're completely correct that uh, the drugs that are out there, the treatment options, are all focused on the reverse transcriptase, that enzyme. And so imagine in a world where there's a lot more research happening on HIV and the, that protein, it uses a reverse transcriptase and hepatitis B uses a reverse, reverse transcriptase as well. So in this world where a lot of research funding, money and drug development is happening with HIV, um, but not as much for hepatitis B, What's happened is the drugs that work for HIV get tested. And does this also work for hepatitis B? Because they're so similar. And 
a lot of the drugs that target HIV also just work for HBV. So because of that overlap, there's kind of a lack of drug development for hepatitis B. Oh, let's just use what's already been invented for HIV since there's that overlap. So because of that, there's uh, just maybe a lack of emphasis on it because we have this low hanging fruit. We have these drugs that work for HIV. So all of those drugs work by inhibiting that, um, that reverse transcriptase enzyme. And most of them are fake nucleotides. So A's, T's, C's, and G's are normally grabbed by a polymerase and they will get tacked onto the growing chain. And with these drugs, they're fake nucleotides and they're, they're able to be incorporated into the growing chain, but you can't add another nucleotide onto them. They're missing this, uh, this hydroxyl group, this chemical um, functional group that allows you to attach the next nucleotide on. So as the virus is copying, it will grab one of these fake nucleotides, incorporate it into the growing chain, and then it can't continue that chain. So the drugs are able to stop the reverse transcription, meaning that the viral particles are not going to have the genome that they need. So with hepatitis B virus, it has a DNA genome. And when you're on these drugs, it's able to form the capsid proteins, but they're empty. So you're not able to make infectious particles and the drugs are actually very effective. They slow down the progression to these diseases like cancer, um, cirrhosis that will happen later. And it also decreases the amount of spread that happens. So it decreases transmission. So you might be less likely to spread it to your child that's being born or to your sexual partner because you're on these drugs. Well, it's definitely good we have those drugs then. That sounds very beneficial. Now, I'm curious though, you mentioned that the treatments for HIV kind of become the treatments for HBV because as you said, it's kind of a, a low-hanging fruit. It works via the same thing. So the same target kind of exists in a way. So are do you think if drugs were developed to target the terminal protein domain, because that is a unique feature of the hepatitis B virus, and that's something that doesn't exist in human cells, would treatments for HPV that target that terminal protein domain potentially have less side effects than the current treatments used for HIV and HPV that target that reverse transcriptase uh, kind of uh, process? Yeah, I would say that that would be the case. So if it's more unique and less overlapping with things that exist in the human body, then you would have less toxicity. Um, that being said, there's uh, we don't have reverse transcriptase in the human genome, right? Like we don't encode anything like that. We don't use reverse transcriptases. So um, with these inhibitors for HIV, there are side effects, um, but, uh, but those, they're very good drugs that way already um, because there's not that overlap uh, with reverse transcriptase and a human. Right. Do you think that the ability to target that terminal protein domain as well has changed over the course of the past two years or so? Um, I'm 
that there's a big push, obviously, and we see it in the news and media all the time of mRNA vaccines that are used to prevent COVID. Do you think that that kind of technology presents a kind of new way forward to target that terminal protein domain that didn't exist previously? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I don't know too much about uh, any drug company that's specifically targeting that. Um, there are a lot of drugs being developed for hepatitis B. And uh, because I studied this, I have you know, this vested interest. I'd love for a drug company to come along and take my research and run with it and come up with a drug that could target that very uh, unique and essential part of the hepatitis B virus. But the drugs that are currently being developed are targeting other, you know, uh, other, other things besides reverse transcriptase that will potentially help with uh, the viral infection. So things like the capsid protein, how it has to assemble and enclose the genome inside. What if you just stopped all of those capsid or core proteins from packaging the genome? That would also stop the virus. There's uh, inhibitors of the entry step. When a virus has to get into a cell, it has to open up and uncoat and release its genome. So kind of the opposite idea there. And if you're able to stop the ability to attach or enter in or uncoat, then you're also able to stop a viral infection. So most of the drugs that are currently in development for hepatitis B are targeting these, you know, they're also unique targets. They're also essential. And they're just uh, different parts of the viral replication cycle. Interesting. Uh, now, you've mentioned that this has kind of been a life work for you, so to speak. Uh, you've done a lot of research on hepatitis B. Um, what other work have you done relating to HBV? And what uh, future studies are you looking into uh, as it relates to hepatitis viruses? Yeah, another of the main bodies of work that we did uh, during my postdoctoral fellowship was to look at the immunology of this virus. So uh, normally when a virus gets in, you have uh, some early signaling, like the, the immune system recognizes that there's a virus and turns, in, uh, turns on things like interferon. It's a, a small cytokine. It's like a little signaling molecule. One cell will release interferon and uh, this small protein will contact a neighboring cell. And it's like a distress signal. I'm infected, I'm infected, and it sends out interferon. The neighboring cell has a receptor for interferon. So there's interferon receptors on every cell of our body. That way we can, uh, what happens is that cell will shut down. It will turn off processes that viruses need before the virus gets in. So a virus infects one cell, that cell produces interferon. The interferon is secreted out of that cell and reaches other cells that you have a receptor for it. And what is the program that changes inside that target cell? It's to shut things down, shut down translation, transcription, because viruses rely on the host for things like translation and transcription of the viral uh, genomes, viral proteins. So it's kind of a cool process that we use to shut down viruses before we even need to make like antibodies and all of that other stuff that comes later. So with uh, hepatitis B virus, what was noted is there's almost no um, innate immune signaling, like these interferon production, that sort of process at the beginning, you can't detect it. So they've, they've done studies in things like uh, chimpanzees and uh, 
these are kind of older studies. There's less uh, studies with primates nowadays, but these early signaling events weren't happening, but you were getting antibodies later on. So there's kind of like the early immune system called the innate immune system that has to do with cytokine production, interferon and things like that. And then later on, we get specific B cells and T cells that form that attack them. And so that's called the adaptive immune system. So the immune system has that innate and then adaptive response. So we saw that there was an adaptive response against hepatitis B, but where was this innate response? Usually you need one and it will inform the other. So we were trying to figure out what was happening early on in these infections. So we did these cell culture experiments where we just grew human cells in a dish and infected them with hepatitis B virus. And one of the interesting things we saw was that you could take the, uh, the liquid that these cells were growing in and they're infected. And we took the liquid and put it into another dish of cells that were just getting infected and it stopped the infection. So really? the cells were secreting something out into the media they were growing in. And when we took that liquid and transferred it over, it actually informed those other cells to stop the virus infection before it started. So there was something in that media. Now, unfortunately it wasn't interferon because that would have been too easy. And it, but it makes sense because no one had found it previously. And so we researched it for a couple of years and actually never found directly what kind of cytokine or other signaling molecule might've been secreted by these cells. So hey, uh, hepatitis B virus is thought of as a stealth virus, meaning it doesn't cause this innate immune activation. It doesn't cause cytokine production early on, but we do make antibodies and things like that against it later. So why is it a stealth virus? Uh, our research indicated that one of the reasons why it might work this way is uh, a virus will have to uh, sort of hide out when it's inside a cell. There are actually sensors inside of our cells when there's the wrong thing in the wrong place. For example, there's DNA in the nucleus of our cells. But what if there was DNA in the cytoplasm, so outside of the nucleus? There should, no, there should be no DNA there. So we actually have sensors in the cytoplasm of our cells that are looking for DNA. If there's any DNA in the cytoplasm, ding, 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 you're probably infected with a virus. This is going to be an alarm that needs to sound. So we, uh, what we discovered with these, uh, the, the infections that we were doing is that there was uncoding happening in the cytoplasm. And that was the recognition that was happening. So. Yeah, there's a whole lot to the immune system. There's an immune system like that adaptive response with antibodies. There's this innate response with things like cytokines, but there's actually an immune response that happens even within a cell, like monitoring for DNA in the cytoplasm. Like that's part of the immune system. And so uh, hepatitis B virus just taught us some lessons about how viruses are sensed inside of even a single cell and that cell can activate and help other cells shut down before the virus infection can get to them. That's incredible. And that would uh, help slow the spread of the virus within your own body. So at once the cell detects that it has a virus or some kind of foreign DNA within it, 
uh, I would imagine that cell would essentially lice or kind of destroy itself to prevent the uh, virus or invading antigen from replicating, or does it just kind of shut itself down and then, you know, pop back up later on or something? Yeah, there's uh, probably both. So that, that process you're describing is called apoptosis. Um, and so it's also called cell suicide. So cells have to be able to kill themselves off if needed. And since we're part of a larger organism, the loss of a few cells is fine. So apoptosis is that process where a cell will kill itself off in the face of some sort of damage or viral infection. So that is part of that program. So things like interferons, these little cytokines that sound the alarm when there's a virus around. Um, it shuts down things like translation and transcription, like I mentioned, but uh, so that could potentially be reversed. But like you mentioned, uh, this process of a cell just killing itself off completely, apoptosis, that's another part of that program that shuts down a viral infection. Interesting. You also touched on the interferons a few times and cytokines. Now, that's a very beneficial thing to help slow the spread of a virus within the body. Uh, but I would imagine that that can become detrimental, so to speak, if the immune system becomes overactive, kind of creating what we call that cytokine storm, uh, which can actually be damaging to the body uh, and in some cases fatal because the feedback loop between the cytokines and the white blood cells that's developed uh, becomes it's a positive feedback loop. So it just continues to load up and load up and you have higher levels of cytokines and higher levels of cytokines over and over and over again. Um, but that varies based on the specific type of cytokine, right? So there's, I, I don't even know how many cytokines there are out there, but yeah, the, hundreds, uh, hundreds. Um, and, and there's like your response to it, right? Not every cytokine if it's overactive is going to lead to a cytokine storm uh so would overactivity of the interferons that we were discussing earlier would that potentially lead to a cytokine storm or is it more of like kind of the unique blend of interferons that get activated that lead to that cytokine storm so to speak yeah that's a good question and uh I'd also like to mention before I uh, answer that, that uh, interferon itself can be used as a treatment for viral infections. So it has been used to treat hepatitis B. So 1991, it was approved for therapeutic use. So let's inject interferon into this person's body. And that actually um, does cure the viral infection in some cases. It's, uh, it's kind of rare that it does, but it will control the viral infection and in some rare cases actually cure it. So it can be used as a treatment for viral infection. So interferons have a target of uh, non-immune cells. There are some, uh, there's a, and there's a couple different types of interferon, but uh, the main one that I've been talking about are these interferons that they wanna activate non-immune cells. So the, the cells that are usually secreting out cytokines are white blood cells. So if you're going to create a cytokine storm, then what we would have to have happen is one cytokine activates white blood cells to produce their own cytokines that activate other white blood cells to produce their cytokines and the process continues. But if the target is non-immune cells, not white blood cells, but instead just you know regular old cells in the body, then in that case, those cells are a lot less likely to produce cytokines to activate the immune system. 
So if the target is non-immune cells, then uh, the cytokine storm is not the usual outcome. Interesting. So it's all about the target then, if it's immune or not immune. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I, I'm learning a lot here as well, like I said earlier. Um, so Dr. Clark, is there anything else that you want to share as it relates to hepatitis B or virology in general? Yeah, I started working in this lab that studied hepatitis B in about uh, 2013, 2014. And this was on the heels of this cure that had just been found in 2012 for hepatitis C. So I got in this lab and, you know, the viruses work completely differently. Um, the hepatitis C virus doesn't use reverse transcriptase. It's not a DNA virus. It's just, it's different, but um, just in this field, there was this excitement. We had just found this cure for this viral infection. And then um, there was just so much to discover and so much to learn. So I think that what we need to do is just keep that excitement going. We need to realize that these things that are happening are uh, miracles of modern science. Like this is amazing that there are people that, you know, dedicate years of their life to study one thing and become an expert in it. And the, the knowledge it's gained can lead to things that help humankind in so many uh, amazing ways and increase our health or increase our, our knowledge. And so that's the, the thing that I would like to mention is just to keep that excitement. Yeah, definitely. Always be curious, always be asking questions and always be looking for answers because you might not, the, the answers might not exist right now, but if you're dedicated and driven enough, like you yourself, you can go out and find the answers that didn't previously exist through a lot of research and hard work and what I like to call sweat equity. Uh, for people who want to either reach out to you, stay in touch, or find out more about your research and what you've been up to, uh, where can people find you? Uh, my email <laughs> is probably the best one. I, I don't have a big social media presence or anything. So <laughs> if you'd like to uh, email me, that'd be great. Uh, DanielClark9 at Weber.edu, W-E-B-E-R.edu. I'll put that below too, in case you didn't quite catch it. Uh, so you mean to tell me you're not viral on TikTok yet or anything <laughs> like that? <laughs> I'll get there eventually. <laughs> For sure. Just got to uh, solve all the uh, other world problems first, right? <laughs> so. Dr. Clark, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you coming on and discussing virology and hepatitis viruses with me. Definitely. It's been great. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you like this episode, please make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and share this episode with a friend who you think would enjoy hearing it. Additionally, if you want to help support this podcast and keep future episodes going, please check out our links below where you can support us directly or through engaging in any of our affiliate marketing links. Last, please make sure you check us out on social media at Braun Body and leave a five-star review, especially if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify.